Wednesday night. How many of you were here Wednesday night for the light before Christmas? It was a good time, and uh, call it a Holy Spirit thing. I think I'm bringing the, the mullet and long hair back. It's going to become a trend. No one's laughing because it's really not that funny, but we did have a good time. Great job, Cassandra Benton and Allison Hitchings. Uh, they did a great job with the idea, and I'm just so thankful for all the parents and families that participated. I think they counted over 140 people here on Wednesday evening. Way to go. Also want to put a word out um, about grab-and-go yesterday, uh, just another way that our church can serve our community, and uh, it's a lot of work. Marsha, are you here? Where are you at, Marsha? she in here? It's a lot of work, isn't it? But, you know, I received an email from Marsha yesterday afternoon that really summarized it. At the end of the day, hundreds of people were blessed. Hundreds of, hundreds of people walked away really feeling the love of Jesus. So thank you to everyone that played a part in that. And uh, just a blessing to be a part of a church that wants to be involved with their community in, that capac- in this capacity. Um, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. We're going to get there in just a moment, but last week we rolled out what we want to do in the way of a Christmas series, a Christmas series of sermons this year, and a lot of times we look at the different characters in the nativity, and maybe we have a message on Mary and a message on Joseph and the shepherds and the magi, and and, and sometimes we'll just go kind of exegetically and just take chunks of scripture. A couple years ago, we looked at the Old Testament and a lot of the, the prophecies from books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah, and there's some rich prophecies that were fulfilled when Jesus came to earth. But this year, we want to talk about the quotes of Christmas. When you look at Matthew chapters 1 and 2, when you look at Luke chapters 1 and 2, when you look at John chapter 1, and you were really trying to drive home, what's the message in the Christmas narrative for the first century world, the, the message in the Christmas narrative for your life and my life today, what will we come up with? And we've come up actually with five different quotes of Christmas. Last week we looked at the command, the imperative that Zechariah, Father John the Baptist, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds all heard from angels of the Lord. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. And yet we talked last week about how fear is a real thing. Even if you're an adult, even if maybe the world says you shouldn't be afraid, we have fear when we hear terms like it's time for a liver biopsy or when we hear terms like um, he was served papers or we hear terms that we don't want to hear. Fear is real. Even if you're 47 years old, even if you're 75 years old, fear can run through our lives and our hearts. Next week, we're going to look at specifically Mary and her encounter with with Gabriel the angel and this encouragement that she receives that nothing is impossible with God. And if we're being honest, if you're being honest, there's probably been a time in your life, if you were straight up with God, that you wondered, is God in a box? Should I pray for that person that's battling cancer? Because I know how the cancer story normally ends. Should I pray for that marriage that's on the rocks because I I know the statistics? Should I pray for my child or not, or is it inevitable? We're going to look next week how nothing really is impossible with God. Christmas Eve, I can't wait for Christmas Eve. Um, Samuel, if you go in his office, he's got the biggest 
whiteboard I've ever seen. I mean, this thing is mongo. This thing is enormous, and it's chalked full with Christmas Eve. I can't wait. I hope you come at 5 o'clock or 7 o'clock on the 24th. I hope you invite people to come with you, and you have them sit next to you, and it's an introduction to our church. But on Christmas Eve, Adam's going to bring the adult message. I'm going to share a children's message that night. Adam's going to bring the adult message, and we're going to look at this prophecy from Matthew chapter 1, where Joseph is told, don't get rid of Mary. Don't send her packing. Don't send her off quietly. And oh, by the way, after the baby is born, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Two weeks from today, Christmas morning, one service. If you want to wear your pajamas on Christmas morning, that's great. As long as they're appropriate, you can wear them. We're going to be here for an hour. We're going to do what we should do on a Sunday and and worship the newborn king. But we're going to look at this um, Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah that is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. You will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But today, we're not in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. We're not in Luke chapters 1 and 2. We're in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. That means they're kind of similar. Many scholars believe that maybe Mark was the first Gospel written, and then Matthew used Mark, and Luke used Matthew and Mark, or some other form. But they're all kind of the same. But John is very different. John's approach is very different. And if you hear the beginning of John chapter 1, it's pretty familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was light, life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then John the Apostle talks about John the Baptist and the role of John the Baptist, and it's good theology, and and we should study John chapter 1, but Christmas shows up with with this phrase in verse 14 that we're going to focus in on today. Here's what John 1.14 says. It says that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so right there, so much in that one verse, verse 14 of John chapter 1, to grab a hold of, I want to break down the beginning part of the verse, but I really want to focus in on the last description of Jesus, that he was full of grace and truth. It's rich theology. It says that the Word became flesh. It's pretty common doctrine, pretty common theology that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He wasn't half God, half man. He was fully God, fully man. And when we sing the Christmas carols, and if you weren't here at 8.15 this morning, our choir did a phenomenal job with the cantata, and many of the songs were based on carols like the first Noel or O Holy Night or Hark the Herald. But in there, there's this rich theology that the word became flesh. It's the incarnation. It's Emmanuel. It's God with us. It's the miracle of Christmas that God came in the form of a beautiful little baby in a manger, but he didn't stay in the manger. He didn't stay that beautiful little eight-pound, six-ounce bundle of joy. He grew up and became a man 
And he had a three-year public ministry, and he changed the world forever. And the greatest way he changed the world is when he went to the cross, and he died on the cross, and he was put in the tomb for three days. And on Victory Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, he rose again. I don't know why you're here today. I'm glad that you're here today. But if you found your way into our beautiful sanctuary and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure out why would I want to keep coming? What's this place all about? That's what we're all about. That the word became flesh. That Jesus, God in the form of a baby, became a man, walked on this earth, ministered on this earth, died on the cross because I'm a sinner. Because you're a sinner and you need a savior. And because of Jesus, we can have victory forever. The the, the second phrase in verse 14 is this idea that Jesus dwelt among us. And I won't go Greek on you today, but if we were to really go to the original language and try to figure out what exactly is John really saying, he's saying this phrase, not that he dwelt among us, but that he tabernacled among us. Now, that sounds kind of weird. What's that mean? What's the tabernacle? Well, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. And you can read through the wilderness wanderings that that, that people would gather together at the tabernacle. They would seek God at the tabernacle. And in its truest form, verse 14 says that Jesus, when he became flesh, when he took the form of a baby boy that grew up to be a man, he actually dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And that sounds kind of mystical. Maybe that sounds kind of magical. But here's what I want you to understand. It was probably ugly at times. My guess is Jesus saw the very worst of humanity at times. And yet he was willing to do it. He was willing to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us. This third phrase that I want to just talk about for just a moment is that we have seen his glory. It's the Greek word doxa. And it's this idea of God's incredible greatness being revealed in Jesus. You remember in the Old Testament, and if you've been around the Bible very long, you'll remember the story. Um, the, The glory of God was getting ready to pass by. And what did God say to Moses? Did he say, stand up there with your chest puffed out as the glory of the God passes by? What, what did Moses have to do? What did he have to do? He had to hide. We had to hide. The glory of God was so great. Moses had to hide. He had to shield himself. And this idea that Jesus is the glory of God revealed is rich. But here's where I want to focus today. Here's what I want us to, to leave with today is this idea that Jesus came from the Father. And I love this description that John gives, absolutely full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I want to um, do a little survey. Um, George Gallup called me this morning and asked if I would do this survey. Just kidding. But um, I, I do want to get an idea. When you hear the word the grace of God, or you hear the word the truth of God, which warms your heart? more? Which brings a smile to your face more? How many of you would say it's the grace of God? I love the grace of God. How many of you would say it's the truth of God? The truth of God really warms your heart, okay? Um, For me, growing up, I learned pretty quickly which of my two parents gravitated more toward the grace 
and which of my two parents gravitated more toward the truth. And you know, I won't reveal which one, but the six foot seven inch guy was more of the truth guy. So when there was trouble that came my way, I would find a way to try to sneak it into conversation with my mom, and she could be aware, and she might be upset for a while, but it was kind of the two of us talking to my dad because he was a real truth kind of guy. And more than likely, parents, and this isn't really the case in our family, but in a lot of families, one parent's more grace, one parent's more truth. And kids, what do we do when that happens? We want to go to the grace person first, right? We want to play the games. Here's the other thing about grace and truth. We're all about truth for somebody else. We're all about truth when it's somebody else's issue. But when we mess up, when we miss the mark, we revel in the scriptures that talk about the grace of God. And so if we're really being honest this morning, if we've been around the faith very long, we've been around the church very long, we probably have a tendency to gravitate more toward grace or more toward truth. And yet that's not what John talks about here when it comes to Jesus. He doesn't say that Jesus had a lot of grace and a little truth or a whole bunch of truth and a little grace. He says that he came to minister, to serve, to change the world absolutely full of grace and full of truth. And so, what do we do with that in 2016? We try to be like Jesus. You should try to be like Jesus. You won't get there. I won't get there. But we ought to have the same motto, the same mantra, the same marching orders that as we live our lives, our lives are absolutely chalked full of grace and truth. It's like balancing a tightrope, and when you try to balance the grace and truth tightrope, it creates tension, and I'll just be frank with you this morning, it can be really painful. It can be really difficult. Many of us want our faith to be cut and dried. We want it to be right and wrong. We want it to be crystal clear. And yet Jesus absolutely ministered in the tension and we should as well. Here's the other thing I want you to understand. It's not an either or. It's a both and. You can't have one without the other. See, truth with no grace is loveless. I would call it loveless legalism. And I'd say that's not biblical. Loveless legalism. And it's not biblical. But grace... Without truth turns into what? Anything goes. And I would also say that that is absolutely not biblical. And within mainstream Christianity in America today, I I think you could point to churches that are grace without truth. I think you could point to churches that are truth without grace. I, I hope that Clinton FCC, I hope that as you live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are, that you will live in the tension, the tension of grace and truth. Jesus didn't run from it. Jesus didn't try to have one or the other. Jesus absolutely embraced the tension. And there's two accounts that John gives us in in his gospel that, that brings this to light, that brings this to the forefront. And the first is in John chapter 4, and Jesus is on a journey. 
And it's been a long journey. And he finds himself in Samaria. And the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get along at all. You've probably heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. But anyway, the disciples go off to try to find some food. And Jesus is all alone. And he wants to get a drink of water. And here comes the Samaritan woman. And she's going to the well. And he's like, woman, give me a drink. I need a drink. And she's like, what are you doing? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and we can't talk. And then Jesus throws down some real truth that she needs to hear. Some truth about himself, some truth about the faith. And about halfway through that encounter, she's engaging him back. He says, you know what? Before we go any further with this this, uh, discussion, do me a favor. Go call your husband. Go get your husband. And, and she thinks she's being cute. She thinks she's being coy. She says, well, guess what, smart one? I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right to say you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. Five. And the guy you're hanging out with now, you're not married to him. And it's at that point that she's cut to the heart. It's at that point that she is broken. And she realizes she's not talking to just some ordinary rabbi. She's talking to the Messiah. She's talking to the true difference maker. Through John chapter 4, we see Jesus full of grace, full of truth. He doesn't say, you're a sinner, get out of my sight. But he also doesn't run from the fact that she's living in a way she shouldn't live. And the encounter ends with the the encouragement that you're going to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And I am the Messiah you have longed for. I am the Savior you have dreamed of. And she goes on into the village, and she's chatty Kathy to anyone that will listen. I have met the Messiah. He changed her life. He changed that entire village. You flip over to John chapter 8, and you see an even more difficult passage of Scripture to read. We see the account of the woman that was caught in adultery. And it's an ugly time, and um, she's brought probably from an adulterous encounter to the village square, and she's condemned, and the, the religious leaders are standing above her, and they're using it as a way to trap Jesus. And said, Jesus, we know the Old Testament. We know our Exodus. We know our Leviticus. We know our Deuteronomy. And we know that the law says she's done. We know that the law says she needs to be stoned to death. What do you say? Jesus, he's trapped, right? If he says, uh, ah, cut her slack. If he chooses grace, what are the people going to say? He's not really true to Old Testament truth. But if he says, you know, you're right. Moses said stone her to death. Let's get some big old boulders. Let's take her to the edge of the village and let's stone her to death. Then where's the love that his ministry is predicated upon? And so for the geniuses of the day, the religious geniuses of the day, he says, well, guess what? You who are without sin, you go ahead. You throw the first stone. You cast the first stone. And they all walk away. It's Jesus and the woman. And it's at that point that he doesn't say, get back to your adulterous relationship. Run. What's he say? Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus Christ, absolutely full of grace and truth. Well, here's the thing. Jesus was 
Jesus, right? Jesus was fully God, fully man. So it's one thing to look at John chapter 4 and John chapter 8 and say, yeah, that's cool how that tension played out. It's cool how Jesus had a whole bunch of grace and a whole bunch of truth and everybody won in the end. That's great. But what do we do in 2016? What do we do in 61727 in 2016? How, how do we live it out? How do we live lives that fully embody grace and truth. I've got four challenges this morning, and this isn't rocket science, but it's something that, that must be intentional. It's something that I think every person here, if you're being honest, you gravitate more toward grace or more toward truth. And this idea of fully embracing both takes work. And the first thing that I would say is, be like Jesus and embrace the tension. Don't run from it engage embrace don't be afraid to roll up your sleeves and say this is difficult this is challenging we live in an incredibly challenging time culturally speaking you don't need me to tell you that today but here's what you need to hear christians followers of jesus have to be at the forefront of embracing the world in which we live it's much easier to put the sheets over our head and go back to sleep and just kind of wait for Jesus to come back and be, be in a spiritual cocoon. Jesus didn't do that. We shouldn't either. Embrace the tension. Number two, and this sounds kind of preachy. I almost didn't throw it in there, but Peter shared it in Scripture, and, and I felt compelled to share. I think if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been around Jesus for a while, um, don't miss the words that really the imperative that Peter had for first century Christ followers late in his life to live such good lives. To be a, a cut above. To say, you know what, I, I'm not talking about I've got to be goody two-shoes all the time, but I want to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to God. I want to set the standard. You know, you look at Jesus and when, Je when the wrath of Jesus came out the most, it was usually around religious leaders who were being incredibly hypocritical. Jesus loved hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He loved spending time with people who needed a savior. But his wrath was at its greatest when it was people who were claiming to be God-fearers and living differently. So just a simple encouragement, live such good lives. I don't have permission to share this illustration, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I don't want you to tell the staff member that I'm going to talk about that I shared this, so it'll just be between the 300 of us this morning. But um, I've noticed with one of our staff members, Cassandra Benton, when her girls are around and they get ready to leave, is she in here right now, by the way, or not? She's downstairs, I hope. Um, like I tell my kids, be good, do good, be nice, put on a happy face. I have encouragement like that. She has the same encouragement every time. Be excellent. That's what her girls hear when they leave. Be excellent. And I would just say as your preacher to our church, that's a great challenge for Let's set the bar high. Let's be different. Let's be distinctive. As we embrace what it looks like to be full of grace and truth, let's set the standard. Three, don't settle for less. Don't take the easy way out. Don't settle for cookie cutter. 
Don't settle for convenient. Don't settle for the easy way out. Roll up your sleeves. Embrace the tension. Engage the people that God has put in your life. Fully embrace grace and truth. And then finally, from our text today, choose to tabernacle with those who need Jesus. Choose the tabernacle with those who need Jesus. I think one of the reasons that I am so convinced that the grab-and-go is such a, an important event, and it, you know, it may be redefined, it may be reinvented, it may not always be exactly like it is today, but the reason I love it so much is there are a lot of people that come through our doors that need Jesus. And some of their lives are train wrecks. Some of their lives are disasters. I, I don't say that like I've got it all together, because I don't. But some of them radically need hope. And I think my favorite time of grab-and-go is that time from about yesterday. It was about 7.30 to 9 o'clock, where people are gathered here in the sanctuary waiting for Marsha's opening salvo and a five-minute devo and the shopping can begin. And I like to watch people just engaging people they don't know. Many who need a Savior. I saw Tim Burke just kind of going row to row. I saw Ken Klein just kind of going row to row. Just talking to people. Engaging people. Tabernacling with people. And so, as we wrap up this morning, who, who in your world on this second Sunday in December will probably close their eyes tonight in need of a Savior, but never having made a decision to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? My, my guess is every one of us could come up with someone. And if you live a life where the only people you know and the only people you encounter are followers of Jesus, guess what? You need to meet some more people. You need to spend time tabernacling the world in which we live. Jesus Christ, beautiful little baby born in the manger who didn't stay in the manger. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us full of grace and truth. Let's be like Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, consider what Christmas truly is all about. It's not about movies and it's not about songs, even though I love a good Christmas movie and I love to sing a good Christmas song. But it's about these truths from Scripture. Like, do not be afraid. Like, nothing is impossible with you. Like, Jesus came to save us from our sins. We call him Emmanuel, God with us. But God, this morning as we talk about this, this balance that, that Jesus lived, that he absolutely nailed, full of grace, full of truth, help us to be people. Help us to be followers that embody that. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the difference that he makes. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.